Section 18 of The Outline of Science, Volume 4. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Catherine E. The Outline of Science, Volume 4, by J. Arthur Thompson. Chapter 36. The Story of Domesticated Animals, Part 1. The art of domesticating wild animals is one of immense antiquity, carrying us back to a period long before written records were possible. So far as the evidence goes, it would seem that the dog was the first of man's conquests over nature, and this was made towards the end of what we know as the Stone Age or Paleolithic period. Man was still a nomad and a hunter, but he had by this time developed the custom of burying his dead and more than this, he would seem also by this time to have developed some vague notions, at least, of a future life, for when a man died, his rude weapons and his dog were buried with him, as if to serve him in the land of shadows. It is to this custom that we owe our only evidence as to the period when the domestication of animals began. And since the dog only is found with these early interments, we must conclude that it was man's first companion and servant. Puppies brought home perhaps to amuse the children laid the foundation of what was to prove an immense aid to the evolution of civilization. With the succeeding Neolithic stage of culture, wherein the surfaces of the stone axes and other weapons were beautifully polished, the nomadic habit gave place to settlements, and the arts of peace, pottery-making, weaving, and agriculture, and the possession of flocks and herds. The wild oxen, sheep, goats, and pigs by which these ancient men were surrounded all seem to have been laid under tribute almost simultaneously to furnish, from animals bred in captivity, a permanent supply of meat, milk, skins, and beasts of burden. Domestication during unnumbered thousands of years have done nothing to change these several animals in one respect, and this in the matter of the peculiarities of their flesh as food. For each still has its characteristic qualities and flavor. An ox, a sheep, and a pig, all reared in the same field and partaking of the same food, will yet, owing to the subtle and inherent differences in their nature, respond differently to their nurture. Yet, in the matter of form, size, and rate of maturity, these creatures, under man's control, have undergone the most striking transformation, so much so that the various races of many of our breeds of domestic animals differ more from one another than do many wild species. Our various breeds of cattle, sheep and pigs, dogs and horses are all witnesses of this fact. These are often cited as so many examples of the breeder's art as if the founder of any given breed had before him a definite conception, a power of visualizing the ultimate development of the salient features, at any rate, of the breed he cherished. The breeder of the old English bulldog could have had no conception of the bulldog of today. It would have filled him with consternation, for the bulldog as we know it would have been useless for the work which his ancestors had to perform. All that the breeder has been able to do is so to control the mating of his stock as to accentuate such variations from the normal as seem to him, either from utilitarian or spectacular reasons, 
to be worth cultivating. In his own day he sees but little real change. Only after some scores or hundreds of generations is there any striking advance on the type accepted by the earlier breeders. 1. Horses Our domesticated horses, there is good reason to believe, are descended not merely from more than one originally wild species, but from two distinct stocks. One of these, which flourished during Pliocene times, was a slender-limbed species, standing about fifteen hands high, and having a broad forehead and tapering face, and certain peculiarities of the molar teeth. This type is represented by the Siwali horse, Equus Sivalensis. The Arab may be a descendant of this stock. The other dates from Pleistocene times, and is represented by a smaller, heavier, stout-limbed animal, surviving today in the Tarpan or Mongolian wild horse, Equus Prusevalski. This view is supported by the striking likeness of the prehistoric carvings of horses of Stone Age man, which have been found in the haunts of caveman in France and elsewhere. During prehistoric times, however, it was apparently represented by more than one species. The survivors today appear to be the Mongolian horse of the Gobi Desert, just referred to, and the Celtic pony, represented by a race of small horses or ponies, ranging from Connemara, the Outer Hebrides, Iceland and the Faroes, to western Norway. While it is generally held that, with the exception of the dog, man possessed no domesticated animals until Neolithic times, and that the horse was the last of his conquests, it must be remembered that engravings of horses' heads wearing a rope-like halter have been found, which were certainly the work of men, of the Paleolithic period. Yet during these times, in favoured localities perhaps, the horse formed one of the staple articles of diet. This much is shown by the refuse heap discovered outside the celebrated cave or rock shelter of Solutre. This could scarcely have accommodated more than half a dozen families, but the entrance was protected by two walls of horse bones, one hundred and fifty feet long and ten feet high, the other forty feet long and five feet high, representing, it is estimated, the remains of some one hundred thousand horses. The man who engraved the horse's head with a bridle, an orientation, also added his share of victims to this pile. That the horse was domesticated in Neolithic times, there is no room for doubt, though whether used as a riding animal or as a beast of burden is not known. It may be that it was first domesticated for the sake of its flesh and milk, then as a beast of burden, pack-horse, and still later as a draught animal. But though during all this time isolated peoples may have used horses for riding purposes, it is significant that the ancient Egyptians and Assyrians, the ancient Greeks and Romans, and the ancient Britons used them to draw chariots, and not as riding animals. British Breeds This is not the place for a detailed description of our British breeds of horses. Suffice it to say that the oldest of these is represented by the Shetland, Welsh, New Forest, Dartmoor, Exmoor, and Connemara ponies. In the south of Scotland, a larger type, known as the Galloway, is found. From the larger types of these ponies, the old pack-horses of the south of England were bred, 
and these were also largely used for riding. The magnificent carriage horse known as the Cleveland Bay hails from the north riding of Yorkshire. Of its early history nothing is known, but it is believed to have been produced by crossing horses of foreign blood with the native stock of the district. Nearly akin to this is the Yorkshire coach-horse, an animal of rather more slender build. Unfortunately, both these breeds are threatened with extinction. Among the English heavy breeds, perhaps the most famous is the Shire Horse, the great horse of medieval England. According to some, this breed was derived from the chariot horses of the Britons of Caesar's time. The slightly smaller Clydesdale represents a shire horse in Scotland. It is a comparatively recent breed dating back to the importation in 1715 of a Flemish stallion, which was crossed with native horses. The Suffolk Punch is a famous and very distinct breed, and readily distinguished from either of the foregoing breeds, having a large head, short arched neck, low and heavy shoulders, straight back, and short limbs. It is a very powerful animal, but suitable only for farm work. As to its origin, nothing certain is known, but it is believed to have been carried from Normandy centuries ago into the eastern counties of England. THE ARAB As to the Arab, this type, as already mentioned, represents an older stock than that of the cold-blooded western horses, since it is apparently descended from the Indian Pliocene Siwalik horse, and in consequence it has been claimed it should rank as a distinct species. But be this as it may, the part played by this animal in the history of the evolution of domesticated horses is one of profound importance for it has been proved beyond cavil that there is hardly a breed of our western horses which has not been immensely improved by an infusion of Arab blood. During the time of the Crusaders, Arabs, Barbs, and Turks, the two latter being derivatives of the Arab, were from time to time introduced into England, and these importations were continued at intervals and aimlessly up till the time of James I. From this time till Anne's reign, just hundred years, Arabs, Barbs, and Turks were imported in considerable numbers for the set purpose of improving our native racehorses. The sires of the earlier importations were mated with native English mares, and it was the progeny of these unions which laid the foundations of our thoroughbred or racehorse, a peculiarly English creation, though now scattered all over the world. But more than this, Throughout all this time, thoroughbred sires have been persistently used for the purpose of improving the quality of ponies, carriage horses, and riding horses, as well as of the heavier breeds. It is for the preservation of this refining stock that we need our race courses today. The domestic ass is a direct descendant of the North African wild ass, Equus asinus africanus from which it differs but little in appearance and coloration, though some breeds are black and some white. The largest of all domesticated asses is that of Poitou, some specimens of which rival cart-horses in point of size. In Spain, as in the East, ass-breeding is carefully studied, and this has resulted in the development of a number of distinct types, finer in appearance and of greater utility, 
than any found in England, where it is never used for writing purposes, save for children, or in farm work. But with us, and indeed wherever it is met with, its milk is valued. In ancient times in the East, herds of she-asses were kept solely for the sake of their milk. The mule is, properly, the product of the cross between the male ass and the mare. The product of the converse cross between the stallion and the she-ass is known as a hinny. In the British islands mules are, as a rule, very little used, but in Spain they are prized on account of their sure-footedness in mountainous country. They are largely employed in the Punjab frontier districts for military purposes, where mule batteries for hill-work are needed. During the late war, large numbers were also imported into this country to be used on the various fronts for military transport purposes. In addition to their sure-footedness, mules, in proportion to their size, are stronger and more enduring than horses. Like the ass, they will also thrive on poorer fodder, and are less liable to disease, and they are further said to be longer-lived. As is commonly the case with hybrids between very distinct species, neither mules nor hinnies are fertile, consequently no new breeds are possible. 2. Cattle It is worth remembering that the earliest known British domestic cattle, which date back to Neolithic times, are of an alien breed, the Celtic Shorthorn, Bos Longifrons. The origin of this breed is unknown, for it has nowhere been found, and its remains are scattered all over Europe, save as a domesticated animal. And it remained the only domesticated ox as far as the British islands are concerned, until the coming of the English, five hundred years after the birth of Christ. These new settlers, it would seem, either brought with them a new breed, derived from the great wild ox, or aurochs, of Europe, Bos primigenius, or they gathered to themselves herds from the wild aurochs which they found in the vast woods which still covered the country. But be this as it may, it is from this stock that most of our native breeds of today are descended. At one time it was firmly believed that the famous white park cattle, of which the best known are the Chillingham and Chartley herds, were the lineal descendants of the aurochs. Today they are held to be extremely ancient descendants of one of the many domesticated breeds which can be directly traced to this source. The black Pembroke cattle or Welsh runts, the black and red Highland cattle or the Kylos, and the Longhorned are the most famous of the breeds which man has, so to speak, fashioned out of the original stock, the wild aurochs. Careful selection on the part of the old-time breeders has brought about the evolution of three distinct types of our British domesticated cattle, beef-producing, dairy cattle, and draught animals. Of the first-named type, the Shetland would stand easily first but for its small size, since it attains to maturity earlier than any other of our British breeds of cattle, and as beef it is unsurpassed. This breed also furnishes some wonderful milkers, Carry cows are famous, yielding in proportion to their size more milk than any other British breed. But most of our dairy cattle are represented by dairy shorthorns. While the Celtic shorthorn and the aurochs have furnished the stock from which our British breeds of cattle have been derived, 
on the continent a number of very distinct breeds are found which have been derived from the indian humped cattle which in turn are descended from the wild malayan banton bos sondiacus the large dun-coloured podolian and hungarian cattle with enormous horns and the similar cattle of northern spain are derived from humped cattle and are used largely for draught purposes and agriculture the castilian and andalusian bulls and those of the navarra breed used in bullfights are apparently descended from the aurochs the indian humped cattle differ from the european cattle in the great fleshy hump on the withers which may weigh as much as forty or fifty pounds and is esteemed a great delicacy in india furthermore they display an enormous dewlap and the voice is a grunt rather than a low commonly the humped ox is known as a zebu a word of unknown origin and never used in india these animals in india commonly take the place of horses some breeds like the hisar cattle of the northwest provinces have enormous horns and drooping ears the native cattle of africa are the humped races though some like the uganda cattle and the famous cape trek oxen have lost the hump in these and the newer cattle of the eastern sudan the horns often attain a huge size very different from any of the wild oxen so far mentioned is the great indian buffalo or arna standing six feet at the withers and with enormous outstanding horns domesticated breeds of this animal are used by the natives throughout india ceylon and the malay states the todas of the nilgiri hills of madras keep enormous herds of these buffaloes for the sake of their milk and butter in many parts of the plains they are mainly employed for agricultural operations and as beasts of burden the last of the wild oxen which have been brought under the yoke of man is the yak of tibet the nearest living relative of the bison it is used both as a beast of burden and as a riding animal while it also furnishes food and clothing to the hardy natives it has also been introduced into parts of siberia here as in tibet travel without its aid would be an impossibility three sheep they were great benefactors of mankind who first domesticated the sheep but we can raise no monument to their memory for we know no more than that they lived in neolithic times and the difficulty of any effort to-day to identify these benefactors is immensely increased by the fact that the gentle art of shepherding was acquired in two widely sundered regions this much seems certain since our existing flocks give proofs of a derivation from two very distinct stocks the mufloon of europe ovis musimon and the asiatic uriel ovis vignae and he would be a bold man who would venture to say whether the europeans or the asiatics were the first flock masters but man has done more than domesticate the sheep he has transformed it to a much greater extent than is the case with cattle or the horse to-day we think of sheep in terms of wool to us it is before all else a woolly animal but this is not the case in the wild sheep which appears to be as hairy as an antelope or a goat but under the superficial hairy coat is an under fur as in many other animals like seals for example 
During long ages of domestication, this underfur has been developed so that only the face and legs retain their original covering. Two other changes have resulted from domestication. The brain has greatly decreased in size as compared with wild sheep, and the tail has greatly increased in length, so much so that docking has become imperative in nearly all breeds. But some breeds of domesticated sheep have no wool, such, for example, as the African long-legged sheep and the Abyssinian maned sheep. By way of contrast, we may take an example or two from among the woolly breeds, wherein the wool has been enormously developed, as in the merino and the Scottish black-faced, in which the fleece reaches to the ground. But the wool of the last named is of more use for carpet-making than for cloth-making. It is difficult to imagine today how the civilized world contrived to rub along without wool, but when and where man first conceived the desire to cultivate its growth, we shall probably never know. It began, we may suppose, among people who used skins for clothing, and these would be people living where the winters were severe. This factor, the stimulus of the cold, would of itself induce an increased development of the underfur where, as in the sheep, it already existed. When the primitive herdsman discovered that such skins were warmer than the normal hairy skins, he would speedily set himself to breed only from such of his flocks as promised the wooliest coats. A very remarkable kind of wool is that of the Bukharan or Astrakhan Dumba sheep, the very young lambs of which furnish the much-prized fur known as Astrakhan. It is a native of Bokhara and the Kyrgyz steppes, and of Persia. Though most of our British breeds of sheep are now hornless, some, like the Norfolk, Dorset, and Scottish sheep, have really magnificent spiral horns. In the matter of these weapons, indeed, sheep have, under domestication, developed some very remarkable features. For some, like the St. Kilda sheep, have increased the number from one to as many as three pairs, while in the Wallachian sheep they take the form of extremely long spirals, looking like giant corkscrews. The tail of the domesticated sheep, it has been pointed out, is always longer, sometimes considerably longer, than in wild sheep, and in some breeds it presents a further peculiarity in that it becomes loaded with fat till it may attain a weight of as much as forty pounds as in the common sheep, which is kept also by the Arabs, who regard it, fried in slices, as a rare delicacy. In this animal the tail does not reach below the hocks, but it is of great breadth, measuring as much as a foot across. But in the cape, fat-tailed sheep it is much longer, and may trail on the ground, it never, however, attains to the width seen in the Syrian sheep. The opposite extreme in this matter of tails is found in a large, lop-eared sheep, ranging from southern Siberia to the Kyrgyz steppes, wherein the tail is reduced to a minute vestige, while an enormous accumulation of fat is developed on the hindquarters, weighing from thirty to forty pounds. This fat, semi-fluid and butter-like, constitutes the great bulk of Russian tallow. The fat rump of sheep used by the Israelites in sacrifices seems to show that in biblical times fat-rumped sheep were kept in Palestine. These sheep, by the way, are singularly colored, 
the head, neck, and legs being black, and the rest of the body white. They are also hornless. Our British sheep are commonly divided into long-wooled, down, and mountain breeds. But this leaves out of account one of the most interesting, because the most primitive, of all. This is the little animal known by the uncouth name of Logton, mouse-colored, of the Isle of Man. This, at any rate, is the type. But very similar sheep are found throughout the Outer Hebrides and in Soay, in the St. Kilda group, the Shetlands, and north yet to the Faroes and Iceland. Three features distinguish the sheep of this type, small size, short tail, and brown coloration. Further, there is a tendency to increase the number of horns, of which there may be as many as three pairs. For the most part, sheep are kept for the sake of their wool, flesh, or milk, while the skin is used for parchment. But there is a tall, long-legged sheep known as the hunia, which is used for carrying salt and borax over the Himalayan passes. Both sexes are horned, and in the male there may be four horns. Another Himalayan sheep, known as the Barwell sheep, a near relation of the Hunia but shorter-legged, is used in the Punjab and other parts of India as a fighting sheep, being pitted in combat, either with its fellows or with other animals. This is the fighting ram of India, and displays remarkable courage. The shock with which two rams meet is astounding, the sound of the impact of their heads being audible at a distance of two or three hundred yards. Finally, because showing how amenable to domestication the sheep has proved, it must be mentioned that in some of the Orkneys, where no other provender exists, the little sheep of the Loagton type are fed upon fish, which are dried upon the rocks for that purpose. By way of a change of diet, they will make their way down to the sea at low tide for the purpose of feeding upon seaweed. Goats let him who talks glibly of separating the sheep from the goats assay his hand at the attempt, and he will find that he has undertaken a task several sizes too large for him. At any rate, the man of science has not yet succeeded in achieving this feat. The matter is not easy even when domesticated animals alone are concerned, but when a sharp line has to be drawn between wild sheep and wild goats, the difficulties become insurmountable. But since we are concerned here only with the domesticated goat, no useful purpose would be served by discussing the nature of these difficulties at length. The earliest known domesticated goat, it is to be noted, is obviously derived from the existing wild goat, Capra agargus, of the Mediterranean Isles, Asia Minor, and Persia. One of the most striking and most valuable of domesticated goats is the Kashmir or Tibetan shawl goat, which has developed a thick woolly underfur from which the famous Kashmir shawls are made. This animal is kept in enormous flocks in Ladakh and Tibet. It is a long-horned, lop-eared animal and varies in color from white to black. No less valuable is the Angora goat of Asia Minor. This is a large animal with long spiral horns resembling those of the markhor and long pendant ears, a foot long. But its value lies in its long silky white hair, which may reach almost to the ground, and is used for the manufacture of a peculiar kind of cloth known as mohair. 
some authorities hold that this animal is a direct descendant of the wild markhor. If this be so, then we have direct evidence of the derivation of domesticated goats from two distinct wild stocks. The remarkable persistence to type which some breeds of domesticated animals display is strikingly illustrated by the Syrian and Theban goats, since both were cherished by the ancient Egyptians, who painted them in their frescoes and mummified their bodies. Thus, then, we can say of a certainty that these two breeds are many thousands of years old, yet in all this time they have hardly changed. Under certain conditions the domesticated goat may become a really formidable animal, entirely changing the economic conditions of vast tracts of country. And this is owing to its preference for browsing on woody shrubs and seedling trees, rather than on grass like the sheep. As a consequence, even in the most deserted parts of Palestine they have destroyed the forests, and similarly they have devastated the island of St. Helena. In other parts of the world, cattle and the camel have wrought like destruction, producing barren wastes where once flourished luxuriant forests. End of section 18